Again, Father, we invite you into our presence. We invite you to be a part of this discussion, not just a part, Lord, but the central feature in everything that we do say and understand at this point in time, Lord. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your love for us. And we ask that you make our minds right and focus our activities, our attention, and our words upon you, Lord, and that you be God in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This session is part three in Lessons in Warfare. And this presentation is called Special Forces. Special Forces. I don't even know what time it is right now. It's 3.30. Special Forces, will you... Will you make the team? Will you make the team? I want to share a couple quotes with you that you may have heard before. And this one's straight from the Bible. It says, I write unto you young men. And I don't think that John at this point is talking about men and gender, but he's talking about young people. He says, young men, because you are what? Strong. And the word of the Lord lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. It's 1 John 2.14. Another statement. Where are the men who will go for forth to the work, fully trusting in who? God. Ready to do and to dare. Sounds like a challenge, doesn't it? Looks like there was a, there's a time when We can't find young people. We can't find brave young people to do the work. And I believe right now that I'm amongst brave young people. How do we respond to that type of challenge that's put out there? And I'm not talking age-wise when I say brave young people. I see people who are very young and not so young. And I think it's applicable to everyone here. Education, we know the statement, page 271. With such an army of workers as our youth, rightly trained, might furnish, how soon the message of a crucified, risen, and soon coming Savior might be carried where? To the whole world. In these last days. God is establishing and assembling an army. But make no mistake, this will be no ordinary army. These will be special forces. And let's take a look at what special forces are. Special forces, they are elite military tactical teams trained to perform high-risk, dangerous missions that conventional units cannot perform. These soldiers need to be physically and mentally robust and have the confidence, courage, and skill to operate how? Individually or in how? Small teams, often in isolation and in a hostile environment. Special forces are high-value assets, delivering effects disproportionate to their size. 
I want you to repeat that one after me, because it's very important. Special forces are high-value assets, delivering effects disproportionate to their size. That's one of the hallmark descriptions or descriptors of special forces. Team of small people, well-trained, who deliver effects that don't make sense in relation to their size. I want to share something with you. Operation Neptune Spear, May of 2011. On a moonless night in May of 2011, American commandos embarked on a dangerous mission. Four Black Hawk helicopters specially fitted with stealth technology streaked across the barren landscape, well below radar level, barely skimming the desert floor. The soldiers descended on a heavily fortified compound deep within Pakistan. They moved with lightning speed, optimum efficiency and the utmost precision. These Navy SEALs fast roped into the compound, advanced into the house, breaching walls and doors with explosives. Shots rang out and a firefight ensued. A helicopter stalled and would not take off. Pakistani authorities, who are kept in the dark by their Washington counterparts, scrambled forces as the American commandos rushed in to finish their mission and leave before a confrontation. Of the five who were killed, one was a tall, bearded man with a bloodied face. He also had a bullet in his head. A member of the Navy SEALs snapped his picture with a camera and uploaded it to analysis in the US who fed it into a facial recognition program. And they had a match. Osama bin Laden had been killed. And just like that, history's most expansive, expensive, an exasperating manhunt was over. The lifeless body of Osama bin Laden, America's public enemy number one, was placed in a helicopter for burial at sea, never to be seen or fared again. The raid was intended to take 40 minutes. All told, between the team's entry and exit from the compound, they did it in 38. Special Forces. U.S. Navy, Sea, Air, and Land teams, commonly known as SEALs. These SEAL teams are the best of the best. Their creed is to be a special breed of warrior ready to answer our nation's call. Navy SEALs, they toil in the dark of night, tasked with the most daring and dangerous and important of missions. To become a SEAL, these men complete some of the most brutal training regiments ever devised and designed to push the boundaries of even the most able servicemen to the limit. Only one-third of the men recruited into this program eventually become SEALs. You must be able to endure a great deal of physical pain and emotional pain. You have to be able to dig deep. To become, to become a SEAL, is to join an elite organization. And a part of what sets a Navy SEAL apart is, that, is their diversity in terms of the environments in which they operate. They operate in 10,000 foot height altitudes in the Hindu Kush mountains, in desert regions in Iraq, as well as jungles throughout the world. 
as of 2011, there were 2,500 active duty SEALs. Very small number of men who make it to that distinction of being a Navy SEAL. With the expanding war on terror and missions in over 30 countries, the Navy needs more SEALs today. But finding young men who can meet the SEAL standard is a challenge. Throughout history, God has employed the tactic of gaining big victories through the use of special forces. That seems to be almost his method of choice. So let's take a journey and explore a couple of these instances and learn a key characteristic of true end-time warfare. So let's take a look at a situation that took place with Gideon, Gideon's 300. Gideon was the son of Joash, of the tribe of Manasseh. To Gideon came the divine call to deliver his people. Israel had disobeyed the Lord, and they had been overtaken by one of their neighbors, the Midianites. And the Midianites were closely associated with the Moabites. And these were people who were very fierce, warlike people. And what they would do is during the time of harvest, when the fertile land of Israel was bearing, they would come in and occupy the land, and they would take the best of the land for themselves. And then, but one thing that's important to understand is the reason why that was permitted to happen was because Israel had fallen into idolatry. And the protecting hand of the Lord was temporarily withdrawn from his people. And he allowed this terrible tragedy to befall them. So let's take a look at Judges 6, verse 12. And verse 12 reads, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And he, he had to tell Gideon from before that he was a mighty warrior because how did Gideon feel? He felt weak. He said that he was the least within his family. But the Lord told him that he was a mighty warrior. So, let's go to verse 14. It says, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And the Lord had to remind Gideon even at that time. Because Gideon didn't know what was to come. And the Lord had to remind Gideon that he was sending Gideon. That this was not Gideon's mission, it was whose? It was God's mission. So in verse 15, Gideon says, But, pardon me, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest, and I'm the least in my family. If the, if the Lord is telling us to do something, do you think that what the Lord wants to hear from us is how weak we are? Do you think that we're informing the Lord of some new revelation of how weak we are? If he charges you with a mission, do you think that the Lord knows who he's asking? Of course he does. He knows you better than you know yourself, obviously, because he's sending you to do something that he knows that you can do, and you don't think you can do it. 
or we don't think we can do it. We always have a lot of questions for the Lord when he sends us on something that we feel is out of step. So in verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will do what? Strike down, I don't want you to miss this, you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. I think that that's a significant statement where the Lord is saying, I am sending you. And you already know the odds against you. And the Lord said he's sending you, and furthermore, you will have complete victory. And what the Lord is saying at that point is you plus him is an instant majority. In any scenario, you plus the Lord is an instant victory. And let's not lose that lesson right there. With God, we are more than our enemy. So, the entire force under Gideon's command numbered only 32,000 men. But with the vast host of the enemy spread out before him, the word of the Lord came to him. And I, I want to stop right here and point out that you're looking at odds of 120,000 versus 32,000. That was where Gideon started. Gideon was fearful, knowing that the odds against him were 120,000 versus 32,000 men. But there's some bad news. In Judges 7, verses 2 and 3, it says, The Lord has said to Gideon, You have too many men. <laughs> if you were Gideon, and the word of the Lord came to you, and you heard him say that your 32,000 men that you were marching into battle against 120,000 warlike people were too many, would that concern you? Would it concern you? I guess it depended on who you are. Me knowing my faith the way it is, I would probably have a couple questions for the Lord. <laughs> okay? Um, it says, I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would do what? Boast. He's saying that I have to make it completely obvious that the victory that you are about to see was at my hand and not your own. So he says, my own strength has saved me. He didn't want Israel to be able to say that. He says, now announce to the army, anyone who does what? Trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So he announces to his men. Fellas, come gather around, gather around. How many of you, okay, we're going to battle 120,000 Midianites, and there's only 32,000 of you guys. How many of you fellows are scared? If you're scared, just, just, just raise your hand. So, 24,000 men raised their hand. And 24,000 men were sent home. 
Gideon obeyed the Lord's direction. And with a heavy heart, he saw 22,000, excuse me, more than two-thirds of his already small force depart and go to their home. We're told that Gideon was filled, and this word is used, Gideon was filled with astonishment at the declaration that his army was too large. But the Lord saw the pride and the unbelief existing in the hearts of his people. Aroused by the stirring appeals of Gideon, they had readily enlisted, but many were filled with fear when they saw the multitudes of Midianites. Now I want to pause right here and I want to point something out. Did you know that fear is a sin? Fear. And I think about that in terms of child. And I've got um, a little boy. He's seven years old. His name is Jordan. And if I took him somewhere to, um, let's say we were walking down the streets. I live in California, so let's say we were walking down the streets of San Francisco. And I have him in my hand. I'm, I'm leading him along the way. And there are all kinds of people all around, but I notice that he starts to cry. And he starts to become scared. And I, I don't, we're in a good area. I don't think that there's um, any immediate threat. But he's crying. And I ask him, what's wrong? What's wrong? He says he's scared. He wants to go back to his mom. Do you think that I should kind of be disturbed about that? This is my son. I've been there with him from day one. That, that, that would disturb me, that my son, who I've given no reason to distrust me, I've never allowed harm to come upon him, I've never misled him, but he's scared. How do you think the Lord feels when in any circumstance that we can find ourselves in, that we express the emotion of fear? Can you understand why fear would be something that he's displeased with? Even in odds like this, where he's trying to do something specific and show himself mighty, not just before Israel, but before the entire known world at the time. And his people are scared. What does that mean for us today? Do we have anything to fear for? The Lord says he is with us. He will never leave us. He will never, ever forsake us. But these people were fear when they saw, fearful when they saw the multitude of Midianites. Yet had Israel triumphed, those very ones would have taken the glory to themselves, we're told. If even with the 32,000 men they won, those 24,000 men who went and said they were scared, we're told that they would have taken the glory to themselves instead of ascribing the glory to God. So, we're at 120,000 versus 10,000. Gideon's saying now, all right, this is going to be tough. But maybe we can do something with 10,000 men. You know, maybe, 
Maybe the Lord's got something planned for these 10,000. We're going to, it's going to be a tough battle, but we'll, we'll, we'll tough it out. But wait, it gets worse. Judges 7.4, he says, But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many. There are still too many men. And he says, Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. And I'm sure Gideon in the back of his mind is saying, well, Lord, I didn't, I didn't really realize that we needed to further thin out this group of men. You know, do you realize, Lord, that there are only 10,000 and no longer 32,000? I just saw 20, 22,000 men leave. But the Lord said that there were too many. And what he told the men to do was to march down to the water and take up some water. And, this, and I want you to understand this. They weren't doing some military exercises preparing for battle. I want you to understand this. These men were actively marching into battle. Okay? These men weren't just practicing up in the hills getting ready for battle. These men were marching to wage war on the Midianites. And on the way, this thinning out, is taking place. It says, hastily, a few took a little water in the hand and sucked it up as they went on, but nearly all bowed their, upon their knees and leisurely drank from the surface of the stream. And then Gideon divided them into two groups. And I want to pause again right here and point something out. The men who were told that the men who dipped down in the water and just kind of lingered by the stream... She says, it's by the simplest of means that God tests men sometimes. By the simplest of means. That's, that's the expression that's used in, um, in Patriarchs and Prophets. In relation to this story. And she says that the men who took their time and took up the water were men who were lazy. Men who are the type to know that they're going to handle a difficult task or a difficult task awaits them. And they would linger and wait around and let someone else go and do the dirty work. Kind of like that syndrome where they say you put, you're like an ostrich and you stick your head in the sand, you're kind of denying what's going on around you. These are the type of men who the world was collapsing around them and they would kind of take their hand off the wheel and let someone else handle it, hoping that it would resolve itself. And she says that the Lord has no place in his work for lazy men. So right, right now, the Lord is taking fear off of the table and he's taking laziness off the table, saying, if you're going to work for me, if you're going to part, be a part of my special force in this last day, you're going to be brave. And you're going to be courageous. And you're going to be willing to do the difficult work. Now, it says that they took up the water and they drank it. And he divided them into two groups. One group numbered 9,000, 
700 and the other 300. And I'm, I imagine myself in Gideon's shoes again. You're looking at these two groups there, and, I, and he's probably thinking in the back of his mind, yes, um, you know, I guess there were 300 men who would not make the cut. And um, you know, as, just as he's about to tell them to go home, the Lord tells them to keep those men and send the 9,700 to home, to their homes. Would that be a, a revelation to you? <laughs> so you now realize that the Lord has thinned your force down to 300 men. And at that point, the 300 chosen men not only possessed courage and self-control, but they were men of faith. God could direct them. And I want you to consider this. If you were amongst the 300, you saw 22,000 leave, and you stayed. You saw 9,700 leave, and you stayed. And now you, as a member of the 300, you say, I'm still going to march into battle against 120,000. I want you to understand this. The odds that they were facing were 400 to 1. It takes a brave man or a brave woman or a man or a woman who trusts their commander to march into battle with those kinds of odds. We're talking about courage. We're talking about obedience. We're talking about a special force that the Lord is assembling. And God sets up a scenario where his people go into battle with insurmountable odds by human standards. And he's, then at that point, the Lord says, now we can do battle. Now we are ready. Now, my name will be glorified. And on top of this, he didn't give them swords. He gave them something very strange. A clay pitcher, a torch, and a trumpet. And the 300 men stayed. Do you think that the Lord's making it painfully clear that it's he who's going to do something great? Do you think that the Lord is trying to set something very clear in our minds by giving us this illustration, this story? Because he could have just simply defeated Midian, Midianites with no one. So in the dead of night, at a signal from Gideon's war horn, the three companies, they were divided into companies of 100 apiece and, and divided, split up. They sounded their trumpets, then they broke their pitchers and displayed the blazing torches. And they rushed upon their enemy with a terrible war cry. 120,000 of the invaders perished that night. 
No words. No words. And this is, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading now from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 546. No words can describe the terror of the surrounding nations when they learned of what simple means had prevailed against the power of a bold and warlike people. Is God trying to do something with us? Is he trying to bring us to a point of understanding today? Is there, are there some methods that we're missing that will cause us to truly act like a special force? Us, the remnant church. Are there, is there a code embedded in these stories of the past that we can extract and I'll tell you right now, there's, there's one code and it's very simple. Obedience. Obedience and faith. Well, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that there's something that much deeper in the scriptures. And I'm sure that there's much more depth in, in the story and symbolism. But on its surface, my friends, obedience Faith, courage, trust. Trusting in the words of our commander. That is our key for victory, friends. So Gideon's 300 key characteristics is that they were small in number. They were great in faith. And what? God could direct them. God directed 300 men into battle with no weapons against an army of 120,000. I want to bring up another case. The 144,000, who's ever heard of them? There's a lot of mystery and debate and controversy surrounding who the 144,000 are. And I'm going to tell you right now, I am not here to tell you if they're literal or if it's a figurative number but there's something I'm here to point out that's very, very, very pertinent, whether or not they are literal or figurative. Number one, be a part of them. Be a part of it. Real number or symbolic number, be a part of it. Jesus, our great commander, has commissioned us to be a part of an elite unit. The name of this mighty force is simply a number. And that's 144,000. Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written where? What does that symbolize? The mind. He had, he had his name written on their minds. Those 300 men who Gideon directed, do you think that they had to have Christ on their minds to stay? Do you think that they had their families on their mind? The, do you think that the men who went home had their families on their mind? And there's one thing I want to point out about the first group who was sent home. There was actually a law in ancient Israel that said if you had just gotten married, or no, if, if you had been engaged to a wife, but you hadn't married her, if you had just built a house but had not lived in it, if you had just planted a vineyard but had not eaten from it, you were exempt from battle. And 
What the Lord is saying is to forsake everything and follow him. He's looking for people, despite what the cultural norms are and what the accepted standard of courage is amongst us. He's saying, follow me. And follow me wherever I go. So, just as it was in Gideon's day, God will score an overwhelming victory with a small number of highly effective warriors. But this will be something greater than anything the universe has ever seen before. Revelation describes this special forces unit as a vast army of 144,000. And they're not specially trained in physical battle, but it says that they have a special relationship with Jesus Christ, the Lamb. And they are far greater than the Navy SEALs, for they're sealed by God. And why are the 144,000 so important? It's because they're commissioned with the greatest of missions ever. And I want you all to hear this because it's likely. It's very likely that this will happen sooner rather than later. It says, in these last days, they must each fully reflect the character of their commander and prepare the world for his imminent return. We are told in Review and Herald, March 9, that we are to strive to be a part of the 144,000. Let us strive with all the power that God has given us to do what? To be among the 144,000. We are to have an intense interest in who? That's the defining characteristic of the 144,000. They are a group of people who totally reflect the lovely and perfect character of Jesus Christ. And they do that at the darkest hour of human history. He came into this world to be tempted in all points as we are, to prove to the universe that in this world of sin, human beings can live lives that God will approve. That's Review and Herald, March 9, 1905. So let's go back into the definition of special forces. The 144,000 is an elite tactical team trained to perform what? High-risk, dangerous mission that conventional units cannot perform. Let's, let, let's break this down. The high-risk, dangerous mission that we have been tasked to perform is to display a perfect and accurate representation of Christ's character at the darkest hour of human history, even at the point when God withdraws his spirit from this earth. That's something that will give God the glory. When his people shine like brilliant stars upon this earth, even after he has withdrawn his spirit from the earth. It says a high-risk, dangerous mission that conventional units cannot perform. Let's define conventional units. A conventional force is like a normal standing army of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of men. And the 
Special Forces Unit, 144,000, is being tasked to do something that the larger group cannot do. These soldiers will be physically and mentally robust. Do you think it's important to take care of your body? Do you think it's important to eat right? Do you think it's important to protect your mind? Do you think it's important to watch what you ingest through your reading, what you watch on television? They're going to be physically and mentally robust and have the confidence and courage and skill to operate individually in small teams in an isolated, hostile environment. Will you be called upon to stand for Christ alone? Will you be called upon to stand for Christ as a part of a smaller group? If you don't think so, I encourage you to read The Great Controversy. Because that book is replete with evidence that we will be called upon as individuals and as small groups. At times, we'll be isolated in dungeons, in prisons. We'll be in isolation in wilderness areas, in hostile environments, in courts of law where we're being accused and persecuted for our faith, in the workplace, at school, where those around you are living in open sin. What are you going to do? How are you going to live? Will you stand for Christ? Will your training as one of the elite special forces that God has put in place, will your training shine through at that dark moment? The 144,000 are high-value assets delivering effects disproportionate to their size. By them, by, that, by, by, by what the Lord is going to accomplish through them, he's going to settle the case before the universe that men who have free choice will choose to live for God and allow him to live, his li live through them and have lives that God approves. I encourage all of you, look around. Look around. Look into the person's face who's sitting next to you. Look around. Look at the person who's sitting behind you. I want you to look deeply into that face. And what do you see? Do you see the face of a warrior? I want you to print the image of these faces in your mind because it's my firm conviction and deep belief that you are looking at someone who could be very well a member of the 144,000. Or you may be looking into the face of someone called to die on the field of battle. Take a long, good look. Because this is the ugly reality of warfare. Some soldiers die. Some soldiers make it through and become veterans. Who's going to die? Who's going to be asked to lay down their life? For the cause of Christ, I don't know. It could be me, could be you, could be the person sitting next to you. I don't know. 
But don't despair because we've all lost people on the field of battle before. We all know someone who's died because we're given a great hope. Throughout God's word, he gives us the assurance that those faithful warriors who are called to die in battle can experience the greatest alarm clock ever known. Jesus is going to come back with a silver trumpet in his hand. And as he descends on that cloud, wrapped in flames of fire, he's going to gaze upon the graves of the sleeping saints. He's going to raise his voice and cry out, Awake! Awake! Awake ye that sleep in the dust and arise. And there'll be a mighty earthquake. Graves will open. Dead will come up clothed with immortality. And the 144,000 will shout hallelujah as they recognize their friends who had been torn from them in death. And at the same moment, those who are alive will be changed and caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Sister White says, when she, when she saw that scene, when it was vividly portrayed in, right before her, she says, we all entered the cloud together and were seven days ascending to the sea of glass. When Jesus brought along the crowns and with his own right hand placed them on our, on our heads, he gave us harps of gold and palms of victory. Here on the sea of glass, the 144,000 stood in a perfect square. And they were all clothed with a glorious white mantle from their shoulders to their feet. Angels were all about us as we marched over the sea of glass to the gate of the city, Jesus raised his mighty, glorious arm and laid hold of the gate and swung it back on its golden hinges. And he said to us, you have washed your robes in my blood. You have stood stiffly for the truth. Enter in. What a beautiful, beautiful reward for someone who's wearied themselves on the field of battle, who has trusted in their commander, who came into acquaintance with their commander, studied his words, studied his life, studied his actions and patterned their lives after his and not by any virtue of their own, not because of anything that they did. He gave them the strength to endure to the end. Friends, we're not talking about some fairy tale group of people. We're talking about how the Lord is describing his people in the last day. It could be very well us. 
but we've got to know Christ. We've got to immerse ourselves in the word. We've got to consume the word more voraciously than a plate of food. I was, I enjoy basketball. And my favorite team is um, a team from Florida. I don't want to say their name right now. And the coach of that team a few years ago had its players in the locker room. They were on the brink of being eliminated in a championship game. And he saw that they were kind of lax, not playing in a motivated and inspired way. And he said, what can I do to illustrate to these men where they, where, where they stand? They've never tasted a championship like I have. And they don't understand what's on the line right now. So he had one of his assistants bring in a bucket of water, put it up on the table. And he said, I'm going to put my head in that bucket and I'll tell you when. And I want you to hold me down there and I'll let you know when to pull me up. So he put his head in the water and the trainer was holding him down right in front of his players. And they didn't understand what was going on, the players. They just see the coach doing the strange thing. <laughs> and 30 seconds went by. Minute went by. Two minutes went by. Three minutes went by. And after several minutes, he motioned to the trainer, let me up. And he came up. And he took in this breath of air. And he was panting and he was trying to collect himself. And his players were wondering, what on earth is this man doing? And he said to them, how bad do you want to be a champion? Do you want it as bad as, it, as I wanted that next breath of air? And my question to you is, how bad do you want to know Jesus Christ? How desperate are you, are, are you to know him and identify with him and call him your friend? Are you as desperate to know him as you are to eat dinner tonight? Or breakfast tomorrow? My challenge to you is let's get to know Christ as well as we know our food. Let's, let's take Christ in and his word in as readily and as often as we take in physical food. Let's communicate with Jesus Christ in a way that nourishes us just as our meals do. And when we know him the way we should, the rough edges, the character flaws, the disagreeable tendencies that we have, that we fight with and lose against constantly, 
will be transformed into virtues, into virtuous character traits. They'll be removed and virtuous character traits will be replaced or even enhanced, just like John. John, if you remember, had some issues. And we now have the opportunity to make a decision to take in Christ. So may we go forward and make Christ our friend, our one desire. And may we meet again, if, we, if not here, but or somewhere else on this earth. If not here, let's make it our desire and our determination to cross swords together and lay those swords down forever as we stand shoulder to shoulder on the sea of glass. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to consider your word. We also thank you for the challenge that you've placed before us to know you, Lord, to pattern ourselves after your lovely being. I pray for my brothers and sisters here and those who may eventually listen to this. And I pray that you make yourself real to them, Lord, and to us as a people so we may catch a common glimpse of you, Lord, in your loveliness and pattern and mold our lives after yours. Father, we cannot change ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And we're very cognizant of that, and that's why we fall on our faces before you this evening, Lord, asking for your strength, for your help, because we can't do it. Father, we need you. And we want to be saved, not because we're scared of being lost, Lord, but because we're scared of, not even because we're scared, Lord. We just want to be with you. You've displayed a matchless love to us that our small minds can't even comprehend. And we ask that you make that love more vivid and profound and evident in our lives through the power of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.